0: Everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, free premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing, writing life, and video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. We've just got a new interview up today. It's a wonderful Deanne Pomerantz, debut memoirist, Lost in the Reflecting Pool. It's a great memoir, fascinating woman. She really learned. Interestingly, she she is a psychologist, uh, but felt that writing her memoir taught her more about herself than all the therapy she had given and done. Huh? Pretty interesting, isn't it? It's true. True, it's true. Check that out at authormagazine.org, and we're funded by the wonderful Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn about that venerable organization at pnwa.org. You can learn about their writing contest, their writing conference that happens every year. Also, all the wonderful classes they offer. It's a great organization. I highly recommend you join it no matter where you live. Because you can listen to their monthly meetings online if you're in Timbuktu or Tacoma. It doesn't matter. Uh, again, that's pnwa.org. Well, today, I'm so glad I got to have this guy back on. We, I talked to David Rockland, novelist David Rockland. We just realized it was six years ago when he published his first novel, his debut novel, his impressive debut novel, The Luminist. Well, it took a little while. He got his second work. The second one out. The Night Language, Uh, language appropriate, that would be in the the title, because David's work combines a love of language, a deep love of language, uh, history, and uh, the complex social dynamics of power, race, and culture. Um, He's also, I should say, if you should find yourself down in Southern California in the Los Angeles area, he's the founder and host of the wonderful Rorschach reading series uh, that takes place in Echo Park, I think monthly, but we'll ask him because we'll get him on the show right now. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back with you.
0: It's good that you're back, David. You're back on the shelves. I know this has been a journey for you, six years between books one and two, and I don't say that to, I don't don't mean that as a criticism because I know how the book (laughs) writing process goes. It's mysterious sometimes, isn't it?
1: It's mysterious, and, and at the same time, given the fact that I also have a family and all sorts of endeavors in life, um, it makes eminent sense that it took this long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, oh, let me ask you about that. Uh, it's always interesting. I You know, I coach people. I teach in writing, and time, mm-hmm. time, time is always a major consideration for a lot of writers. Uh, you're a lawyer, yes? Is that true? You're still a lawyer?
1: Yes, I still yeah, am. So you're
0: a lawyer? busy man you got a family met your lovely wife you have kids uh mm-hmm. but you write books too so do you have a sort of uh strategy for how you manage that or do you just try to squeeze writing in wherever you can or do you say no i'm going to get up at 5 a.m every day and we're going to write from five six how do you do it
1: uh, yeah, My strategy is really sleeplessness. That, that's, ah. that's the strategy in a <laughs> nutshell. That's my game plan. It Seriously? may not be a good one, but I've got one. No, it's, I, I am actually up every morning at 530. Um, yeah. and, but instead of actually writing on the front end, I am at work early in the morning so that I can uh. leave at a very reasonable, even somewhat early hour, pick up my daughter from school, and then have the evening to feel a little bit fresher and jam some writing in.
0: Interesting. Okay. David, this is fascinating because I write first thing in the morning. I get up at 5.40 mm-hmm. every morning, and I'm writing by 6.20. Uh, and the reason I do it in the morning is I feel that my mind – I meditate, which helps, but you know that just doesn't okay. sort of level me. But the reason I do that is I want my mind to be as close to that blank page as possible. I don't want any mm-hmm. momentum of politics or family. I just want to – and I tried writing later, and I couldn't do it because I was filled up with the day. But you can right. come to the page at the end of the day and clean out, leave the day behind, and, and, and enter 19th century England. Is that right? Is that possible for that you? That is
1: correct. It must be. It is. I, I have some weird ability to compartmentalize. Not yeah. with every aspect of life, but certainly with writing, where you know that the the old um, Hemingway adage to "Leave a little bit of water in the well
0: yeah. if yeah, yeah, i yeah. 'm
1: able to pick back up from where I was the day before it 's really only because i've got i 've been able to access some part of myself that essentially has the book always percolating in the background of whatever yeah. i 'm doing, yeah so that i yeah. don 't have to really spend the first hour of the period of time I'm going to write, trying to work myself emotionally back into the arc yeah. as I left it. I can actually yeah. jump right in, pick back up where I was, and, and just get to work within a couple of minutes.
0: Wow. A couple of minutes? Seriously?
1: yeah i I think I've had to wow. develop that skill just because of the nature of my life. It's just so busy so that if I'm able to and I hope my employer's not listening right now, but if I'm able to sneak <laughs> in a little bit of writing during the day, I will, right. or if you know my daughter is occupying herself with something, I'll get some writing done even despite the the background noise i just I think it's just. Like any other endeavor, it's just repetition, and eventually you learn how to do it at a pretty proficient level.
0: So I hope all our listeners heard that. This is great advice from David, but he couldn't explain how he did. It's often mysterious to us, but I do think to be a professional writer, you have to learn how to make, be serious about how to get into the frame of mind where you can write, because it's a different frame of mind yeah. than being a lawyer and a father and a husband and so on. At least I find it that way. And so I at mm-hmm. one point got very serious about how do I get into that frame of mind where I can write. Because until I make that shift, it can't happen. And clearly, that's something that you got serious about at some point when you said, I want to do this novel writing thing.
1: Yeah. And I think really, for me, it may be less learning how to get into the frame of of mind necessary to write, and more about learning how to function in the different areas of my life while never, ever getting out of that frame of mind. It's always there. It's just basically in the back and I just simply right. move it forward. But the book has been percolating throughout the entire dam, always making little side notes. It's always there. I just maybe yeah. can't quite act on it right away, but it, it never really turns off.
0: But, okay, see, I, I, I agree. And, and one of the things I tell my students is, if you want to have that experience, and I believe to write a book-length project, you, you, you want that experience. Otherwise, you do have to start from scratch every time. and It's like starting the engine up, and it can take an hour. But I find that if you are able to work five days a week, that mm-hmm. that that everyday thing that it keeps percolating but if i go a month or a week even the percolation stops for me at least yeah. i need to yeah. be back at it regularly is that true for you
1: yeah yeah i think so i i really have to have a tactile connection to the writing you know every every day or at least every other day otherwise i uh, even just getting away from kind of the metaphysics of writing down into just the the simple functions of memory, I forget where I was, especially with a story that can be very sprawling. I don't remember everything that I'd already done, um, which can be fun when you go back and revise as you go back to the very beginning and say, oh, look what I did at the beginning. I didn't even remember that. But, you know, when you're trying to complete a story, that can be a little bit maddening if if you don't have kind of a ready frame of reference for what it was you intended to do. So definitely... I have to have hand-on, hand-on story every day at some point; otherwise, I will also lose the thread of it.
0: Right, right. And so now, that, now the, the night language this is interesting. Um, uh, I, I don't always read acknowledgments, but I I did in yours, and it was interesting because the luminist was about a photographer, among mm-hmm. other things. Right, and so this book kind of kind of grew out of some chance research that happened. Of one image right. you stumbled across in your research, is that right? That's right. Oh see
1: this is yeah, that, okay. what happened so just tell ba- us a little bit. Yeah. I just
0: find that fascinating. Tell me just a little bit about that.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, so basically, the, the Luminist was a very heavily fictionalized version of a period in the life of a woman named Julia Margaret Cameron, who in life was one of the first Victorian-era photographers. And she was a very transgressive person. She really completely disobeyed all of the societal rules and strictures that were put upon women at that time to become an extraordinary portrayer of, of the leading lights of her time. She portrayed Biblical scenes, she took pictures of just everyday people, and she was amazing at it, really just remarkable at it. So, in researching The Luminist, I was lucky enough to come across the Getty archives. They opened up their archives for me so I could see the entire collection of photographs that she took during the course of her life. And one of the pictures depicted a, a young child, um, a black boy. Dressed the way colonials would have imagined someone from Africa should look. So to my Ah. modern eyes, it was really an abhorrent image. He was wearing a necklace of teeth. He was holding a spear, and he was leaning against a shield. And it was just, it was really primitive and abominable and stereotyped. But despite the trappings, there was something about his face. He was as alone as any child I've ever seen, but there was something resilient and proud and strong about him. And I I realized, I'm just curious, I need to know more about this kid, but... I can't really look at it now because I'm working on this novel. So I finished the novel. The novel was picked up for publication. I began to turn my attention to what else I wanted to do for the next book, and I came across the picture again. And this time I embarked on some research to try to figure out who this child was. I had no idea. He might have been a kid right. from London for all I knew or, or just nobody. And it turns out that he was, his name was Alamayu, and he was the son of the emperor of Abyssinia. And to make a long story short, the British army invaded Abyssinia in 1868, and after decimating the country and essentially destroying his entire family and his life, they took him. And they brought him back to England, where he became a ward of Queen Victoria's court. And this photo, based upon its date, was probably taken within hours of him landing at the docks in London and essentially being taken to see Queen Victoria and the palace. So he was completely discombobulated. He'd been taken by the same white colonial army that destroyed his life, by people whose language he didn't speak, And he was in a completely strange new world, a city that he couldn't possibly have imagined growing up in Abyssinia. And so just the complete devastation of his life is present in that picture. And when I did more research on him and found out a little bit more about his tragically very short life, what I was overcome with was a desire to write for him the life that he did not get to live. So the night language depicts a very fictional Alamayu, a a different age, a completely different life in England. um, And, of course, that became a love story. Right.
0: And you deal with all – it's interesting. uh, It seems to be – these two novels, there seems to be similar themes, which is sort of a repressive society Mm -hmm. with very strict rules – and people operating outside those rules who don't fit into the sort
1: of right. Right. predetermined. People who are outsiders, and people, you go, people you who really are others. really look at it, right, yeah. the
0: other. And there's a lot of others, there's Jewish, there's gay, there's black, there's African, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. everything. Um, but do you, that, is that something that you sort of – kind of as a person know like I'm going to that's going to be something I'm going to return to again and again and again because I have certain things that I kind of could tell you I'm going to come back to this again and again or is it just sort of that's what falls that's what falls for you and you find yourself a little surprised to be writing about it again
1: because Illuminus did that some also. <laughs> <laughs> it did it did um, I, I, never, I, I never consciously write thematically um, I wouldn't know mm-hmm. how to do that But I definitely seem unconsciously to return to similar themes of being an outsider, being othered, um, being lost to history or in danger of being lost to history, and then being found and being explicated and being understood. Those things seem to run Um, in my work. But really, the the stories that come to me really come usually from the result of a collision between an image I see and a fact about that image that I learned that just sparks my imagination completely. So in The Luminist, it was seeing some of the images that she took in life and learning that she lost a child at at birth. And that collided... And turned into a story about a woman who becomes obsessed with holding moments from life still so that they're never taken from you. And in the night right. language, it was his image coupled with the fact that he in in actual life, I won't tell you what happens in the book, but in real life, he died at 17. Those two things collided and gave rise to the desire to write an alternate life for him, where he experiences a number of things, and it turned into the story of the kind of love that would sacrifice for somebody who was that important to you. Um, So that's usually, and the the one I'm working on now, a very similar thing. So those those seem to be um, themes that emerge, but it's not my conscious intent to to write around any particular theme.
0: Now, is the book you're working on now also set in historical times, or is it a modern it day? Is. It's,
1: it's so I, it is. It may be a little of both. I'm, I'm flirting ah, with the okay. idea of creating a parallel present story, but the story in chief is set in historical times. Oh, man. Oh, you historical writers. <laughs> and it's going to be incredibly long, I can tell you that. Uh, oh, really? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's already maybe, very long.
0: Maybe. Maybe it'll be a novella. You just don't know by the end, do you? Really,
1: if, um, if I get very violent with my editing, it could be a novella. But it would, there would have to be some extreme <laughs> violence. <laughs> you know
0: what I find interesting about uh, this story? I love creation stories. They're some of my favorite. And what always sort of excites me is that moment of recognition where the artist mm-hmm. sees something that he says is worth his attention. He, she, in your mm-hmm. case, he. Um, and I find it mysterious. I find it like falling in love, in that that you know I could have seen the exact same picture and just said, oh, that's interesting. Flip onto the next thing because I am who I am and you are who you. But for you, it sent you on a six-year quest. I, I yeah. find that that so fascinating. I don't know what to say about it beyond that, but I just find it interesting that that how unique we are expressed in what draws our attention in the way that that picture did for you. From all the pictures oh, I mean
1: yeah, what, what, what we do when, when, when you write, when I write, when the folks who may be listening to this, when they write, you know, if you if you had that experience really in any other line of work where I'm working on something and the material begins to communicate something to me and it begins to talk back to me, usually somebody would be the next sentence would involve a psychiatric hold, but for <laughs> us that's the exciting stuff that's when you know that the material's coming alive. And in, in the night language, I can tell you exactly when that happened, because the night language did not start out with the intent to be a love story. The character of Philip, who becomes the great love of Alamayu's life, didn't exist until around the third draft. So wow. there was he, wow. was, he was a background character, unnamed, who essentially at first served as the only other black face that Alamayu saw aboard the ship that brought him from the war back to England. Then he began to emerge as the only character who looked back at Alamayu when he looked at somebody aboard that ship and actually tried in a very halting way to communicate with him. And I began to notice that there was a real yearning between these two characters so I stepped back and got out of their way. And it was just remarkable that the story developed without my without my intending it to.
0: Yeah. Well, having done, I don't know, thousands of these interviews, uh, <laughs> of course, written a few things myself. This doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me, even in the slightest. But one of the reasons I love talking to writers and why I love gathering them together in secret is that they can talk like this and not worry about being carded off to a loony bin because there is exactly. a kind of, you don't, you know, you're a lawyer. A lot of do- Sometimes writers can be, want to live very sort of rational Meat and potatoes life, but there's no getting around what happens when we close the door on what we call mm-hmm. reality and enter the reality of our story. It is so close to channeling, if you believe in that, or mm-hmm. um, what you start, whether you want to or not, you start sounding a little bit like a mystic when you describe the actual experience that occurs. Right, I tell people
1: that prayer. writing – I'm not a religious person, but I tell people that writing feels to me what prayer must feel like to someone who's religious, where you feel some connection to something that is outside of and perhaps larger than yourself. Yeah. Well, you got,
0: I, I can't do it. I cannot do it if I – so I, it got easier for me, I should say, when I realized my job was to ask a question and not have an answer. That my job was Mm -hmm. just to have a question and something else, whatever that is, answered it. Call it your imagination or your muse or God, whatever you're comfortable with. But that's what I I found myself as I'm the one, like the one tuning the receiver, but then something else brings it in. When I stopped taking responsibility for it, it got so much easier. It just was impractical to think of it otherwise.
1: Right. And if you think about every other area of our life, we are usually – discouraged from or perhaps even punished for not having an answer to something. That's 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 not the optimum situation not a you find job. yourself in. It's certainly not <laughs> right? a lawyer's job. It's not a parent's job. It's not that yeah. somebody comes up to you and says, I'm trying to figure out where the nearest restaurant is. You're not supposed to answer, why don't you just walk and experience it for yourself? They'll be looking at you like, well, you're a <laughs> hell of a lot of help. But in writing, it's, that's exactly the most optimum place is where yeah. you've achieved a, a comfort level and an intimacy with the characters and with the circumstances they find themselves in that you can let them Walk out of the house Close the door behind them With no idea where they're going Because you trust yeah. that they're going to go somewhere That's that's where you want to be as a writer
0: Yeah, it's so true And I'll tell you, I, I write about my own life now And that still is true Which is to say, I sit down and say I'm going to write about this thing that happened to me So I kind of know what's going to happen So it's not quite the same Because I used to write a lot of fiction I don't anymore Where I would really not know what the characters are going to do But the same kind of mystery mm-hmm. persists Which is, I know what happened You know but I don't know why I want to write about it. So I have to leave this mm-hmm. big space for, for me, for inspiration and for discovery. And when I do, and I always do, and it's very uh-huh. similar. It's a little different, but it's very similar to when I would write fictional characters and they would say things that would surprise me and the story would change. But right. you know, it's so hard to describe that to people if they've not had that actual experience because all the language you use, he, they, as if they are people up outside of you, which really you kind of have to think of them that way. You can't think of them as like, well, Nabokov did, you know, he was like a galley. well, he thought they were his galley slate, I think he said,
1: but I could <laughs> never think of them that way. No, 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 no. Because they're, they're not, that, that implies a level of control that I think sometimes can be a bit dangerous if you're, ex, if you're exerting control over your characters. To me, it's, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, and you, you feel like you might become friends with them, and so you tell them, here's where our friendship is going to be a year from now. Let me plot out exactly <laughs> all the beats of this friendship, what we'll be doing next yeah. week, next month, and what exactly we will be doing and the, the level of intimacy we will have achieved 12 months from now and then you step back, if in 12 months the friendship went exactly as you imagined it would in the first five minutes of meeting somebody, that's a boring-ass friendship. I've got news yeah. for you. You need, a, you, need a, you need to raise your bar on friendship. The, the surprises are the journey, and you don't get surprises in your writing by exerting maximum control over your characters. You get them by letting your characters roam freely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I always liken it to a conversation, which is a conversation mm-hmm. with a very good friend. You... you all you know is that if you really love this friend and you, are, you know probably it's going to be an interesting conversation, you know you're looking forward to it, but you can't plan it out. You can plan out hello, but that's yeah. really all you get. But you don't get more than that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it is like a conversation between you and your imagination or whatever. You
1: Completely know? agree. And why would you want more than that? I mean, again, boring.
0: That's right. That's right. Uh now speaking of conversation, you uh I had the pleasure several years ago of participating in your fabulous reading series which you've been doing. You're still doing Rorschach? Is that still going on?
1: Yeah. You were great at it oh. by the way. And we're we're not at the Thank venue you. where we were when you read. We were at Stories at okay. that time. Now we're next door at uh we, we participate with eight twenty six LA, the, the national charity that David Sedaris started. Ours is the Echo Ooh. Park chapter. And we are, if you remember where you were, right next door to stories, there's a place called the Time Travel Mart, kind of a quirky, mm-hmm. oddball little place. The back room of it is a large meeting room, and that's where each day after school, at-risk youth gather to get literacy lessons and, and assistance and tutoring, and that's made possible by A26LA. So we oh, work in partnership. Okay. We hold our reading series there, and we help raise funds for A26LA through the reading series.
0: That's awesome. So just let's say in case folks live down in the Southern California. I know some people listening to this do live down there. So uh, it's called Rorschach, and it's done monthly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, they want, right. if they're interested in sort of participating and want to kind of know when it's happening and so on, is there like a Facebook page for it? Can they like mm-hmm. it? Be, how do they keep up on it?
1: best way is either to reach out to me on my Facebook author page or bump me an email. I'm, I'm Bump me an email about the novels. Bump me an email about the reading series. I respond to everything, and the email address is drocklin2, so D-R-O-C-K-L-I-N, and then the number 2 at Gmail. And I will, I will hook you up with whatever you need. Um, we always invite new folks to attend the reading series. Submit to me if they would like to be considered for a reading slot, um, we also get readers through a very fun little game we play called Live Write, which is a writing improv yeah. contest, and uh, it's, yeah. we, we try to make, the, you know, when, when writers deal with dark themes, we're dealing with heavy material, the readings themselves can be very serious and very moving, but the reading series, we try to keep the tone very light, very fun, and uh, mm-hmm. people seem to enjoy it, they keep coming back.
0: We had a good turnout. I mean, readings are what they are. Yeah. You know, it's not rock and roll here, but I, we had a very good turnout for the one I was reading at. It was a lot of fun.
1: Well, you're a draw.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> you Actually, are. now this is interesting. I read a piece. This is. it was a while ago that I did that, and it was a while ago the Luminous was published, but the piece I read then, we're finally going out with it in January. This is a memoir oh, that's I started awesome. then. It went through a million iterations. Became one mm-hmm. thing then another. I published a piece in the New York Times about it, and it was, uh, but now finally got the right agent, and now it looks like we're going out. So you see, I too That's have been fantastic. on a very long journey, David.
1: You know, you that, then you relate. It, well, now you got to come back now, to Rorschach and read with us again.
0: Well, next, you know, it's too bad. I was down there in uh, for a writers conference in, in uh, Southern California for the for the um, Writers Digest Writers Conference, and I thought of you, but I, we couldn't fit it in. It was, I think. I don't think it was while you were. It was, yeah. It was actually. Don't do. Don't you do it on Sundays usually?
1: Yeah, we usually do it the second Sunday of each month.
0: Yeah, I was gone by Sunday. I know. I want to come back and do it again. Rorschach, yeah, everybody. R O R. It's a clever term. It's a clever name. It's or and then the second word shack, like a like a little building. Mm-hmm. Rorschach.
1: That is Excellent. correct. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, so, so, all right, so this is so the book, Night Language, is out. You've been touring around talking to people about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you mm-hmm. been enjoying that? Has it been a fun conversation?
1: It's been really fun. The, the, the audiences have been lovely. We've had good turnout in the cities that I've been to. Um, and what's been the most gratifying is after the readings, um, somebody will come up with a copy to be signed, and they will inevitably say something along the lines of, Thank you for writing a story in which I can see myself. And that ah. is, that's the most ah. gratifying, moving thing that I could possibly hear. If I, if, I, if I sell two copies of the book, but they're both to <laughs> somebody who feels seen, I'm good. I can die happy at that yeah. point. That's really the only reason I wrote it.
0: You know you know why I think people say that? I have a theory. I was listening to you talk about this book, and I have a little theory. And I think on some level, we all feel like outsiders, I think yes.
1: at some point,
0: I don't care, white, black, gay, straight, man, I think everybody feels a little bit like an outsider.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I think so. We're
1: all we all, all so. familiar with that feeling, you know, that feeling yeah. of being on the outside looking in, of not being included, of not being seen, um, or not being yeah. seen in the way that we hope, or being afraid to be seen for who we really are for fear that that's going to lead to rejection or, or ostracizing yeah. yeah I think we can all relate to that in some way and that's you know much has been made about this novel in terms of the fact that it is at its heart a love story between two young black men but it's right. a love story between two human beings who come from different places who find in each other something that they didn't even realize that they were looking for and then when yeah. the circumstances demand it they find out how much they're willing to sacrifice for that love—that's, I think, a universal experience, and it's one that, honestly, I hope we all get to feel at some point in our lives. Yes. Who was
0: it? I was. uh I was. Oh God! I wish I remember who said it. It was beautiful. Someone who was—I can't remember who said it. They had. Tra- it was. I think it was an older quote from about a hundred years. Somebody who had traveled the world. Oh no, it wasn't. It was from Eddie Izard. <laughs> Eddie Izzard. Oh, okay. I listened to his, uh, his memoir, and he's traveled the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he's gone all over the world doing his his comedy, and he has a wonderful memoir out um, called "Believe Me" that he reads and improvises over. So, you know, enjoy that. But, but he said the one thing that is constant. He's he's done. He's been to the all corners of the globe. He said, "Love is the same everywhere you go. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. where you go, love is the same." And yeah, I have to agree. It is the one. I agree. Constant. I
1: mean. The- it is. That's why I dedicated the book the way I did. The dedication of the novel is to the love of my life and to yours. Because I, I, I saw think that's the that. experience that we all should have.
0: Absolutely. Amen, brother. Well, listen, it's a good note to end on, but it's not time to end yet. I have to ask you one more question. You may yes, have sir. answered this question before, but I'm going to ask it to you again. Okay, finish this sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? What has it taught you?
1: Empath- empathy. Empathy absolutely Good. empathy yeah it's ta- it's, yeah. Taught me, it. it's taught me it's taught me to never assume that the road to another person is what i think it is to look for the road that it actually is You know, when I think about people with whom I have political differences or (laughs) demographic differences, you know, there is a road to them that I assume must be real because of what I presume they believe or what I presume they think. But inevitably, there's another, more intimate, more familiar road that allows me to really relate to them and understand them. And I don't think I would know that without writing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I've heard that from so many writers.
0: Amen. Empathy, empathy, and compassion can't can't write without it. Well, if people want to. Find out about you and if they want to hear you read and so on, is the best place to reach you your Facebook author page? Would that be the best bet?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Okay, David Rocklin on Facebook. Excellent. David, so good to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. It is beautiful as I knew Thank it. Thank you be. so much. Congratulations and I look for is it Chief? Is that what you say? Is that the working title for the next book?
1: The working title of the book is uh, I don't think so. It's a longer title than that. It is The Electric Love Song of Fleischel Burger. (laughs) Yeah. Just let that marinate for a while. Let let it marinate for a while. Wow, I love it.
0: (laughs) I like it. David, it was great talking to you.
1: You too. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you're welcome. Take it easy.
0: Oh, have a little have a little empathy people have a little compassion it's true it's true listen tis the season yours truly will be taking a couple weeks off for the usual reasons this time of year but i will be back for the new year with new interviews i'm going to be talking to james lee burke that'll be a lot of fun plus a bunch of other people in the meantime merry christmas happy hanukkah happy whatever see you next year